Chapter 8, The True God, the True Messiah, and the Precious Seed of Immortality. Christianity is firstly about understanding God's great kingdom immortality program for the human race and understanding that Jesus is the human Messiah, the Son of God. God is carrying out his plan through Jesus the Messiah. Christian faith is about acting on that knowledge. It's about, quote, getting with the kingdom program. About treating the knowledge of the kingdom gospel as priceless treasure, Matthew 13, verse 44. About understanding what the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Jesus is working out in history. About cooperating with that divine program. About working as we can for God's kingdom cause. All this amounts to knowing the destiny of man and the purpose of human life. Living forever rather than dying forever, that's the choice, and the choice is ours. It's about realizing that we have not done what we should have been doing, that we've been careless with the Bible, and that we should repent of our ungodly behavior and beliefs and seek to have the mind of Christ which is the same as the spirit or mind of God. Repentance means, quote, thinking again and gaining a new orientation on life and its meaning in the light of truth found in the scriptures. It means learning to think like Jesus and sound and act like Jesus. Jesus counsels us to, quote, live by every word which proceeds from God's mouth. Matthew 4, verse 4. God's final message, the gospel of the kingdom, was the focus of Jesus' entire ministry and of the ministry of Paul. Attention to the words of Jesus is the key to the Christian faith. Yet the public has been presented with a Jesus who did not really preach the gospel. This disastrous mistake has been achieved in various ways. There is a catastrophic theory taught by some churches that the gospel which Jesus preached is not for us, but was only for Jews. This extraordinary notion would cancel the teachings of Jesus and divorce him from the saving gospel. It flatly contradicts the Great Commission by which Jesus ordered his own kingdom gospel to be announced to all nations without distinction. Any departure from Jesus' clear marching orders regarding the gospel should be firmly rejected, and the warnings of 2 John 7-9 and 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 and Hebrews 2 1-3 noted carefully. Paul could not have made the gospel clearer. His whole career was dedicated to preaching the one gospel about the kingdom, which is of course identical with the gospel of grace. You find that in Acts 20 verse 24 and verse 25. Paul was obediently following Jesus. It's evident that the preaching of the gospel of grace is identical with the preaching of the kingdom. Proclaiming the kingdom 
is the same as testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So said F.F. Bruce in his commentary on the Greek text of Acts. We are told to think and be like Jesus. And Jesus was the perfect model of someone who thinks and acts like God. He was not, of course, himself God. That would make two gods. You cannot say the Father is God and Jesus is God. That makes one God. It does not. Everyone, I think, really knows this, but church tradition is very threatening and sometimes believers have been frightened into believing impossible things. For example, that the Father and Jesus are both God, but that that makes one God. This makes no sense. It communicates nonsense. And here are some other things to think about. God cannot die. Jesus, the Son of God, died. God cannot be tempted. Jesus was tempted. God never sleeps. Jesus fell asleep. God is not a man. Jesus is a man. And most significantly of all, Jesus quoted the Jewish creed of Israel, which certainly restricted God to a single divine person. We call that biblical Unitarianism and never permitted anyone to believe that God was mysteriously three and yet one or two in one, which would also be a violation of the command to believe that God is one person, the Father of Jesus. Listen to the very clear statement of Paul. For there is no God but the one God, the Father. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. That is the Christian creed. Paul has been discussing the fact that in pagan religions there are many so-called gods and lords. But for us Christians, belief in more than one God is impossible. Christians should be committed to the creed which Jesus loved, found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. That creed Paul also referred to in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, where he contrasted the Christian belief in one God the Father with the belief in more than one or many gods in other systems of religion. I quote, we know that there's one God and no one else besides him. For us, there is one God, the Father. Paul went on to speak of our belief in one Lord Messiah, Jesus. But note that Paul believed that Jesus was the Lord Messiah, certainly not the Lord God. Luke had used that same phrase, the Lord Messiah, in Luke 2, verse 11. Jesus is said to be the Messiah repeatedly in the New Testament. Jesus is not the Lord God. He's the Lord Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ or Messiah. Psalm 110 verse 1 mentions those two contrasted lords. One is Yahweh or Jehovah. Wouldn't matter how you pronounced it. And this is the father of Jesus. And the other Lord in Psalm 110.1 is the human Lord, Messiah.
David referred to the Lord Messiah as my Lord, with lowercase l, in Psalm 110 verse 1, which should be memorized by every believer. A thousand years before Jesus was born, Psalm 110.1 calls the Messiah in Hebrew Adoni. That form of the word Lord, Adoni, occurs 195 times in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and it never once refers to God. I note that Strong's Concordance will not show you that distinction, but it is obvious to anyone reading the Hebrew and supported by all the major lexicons. The RSV and the NRSV correctly do not put a misleading capital L on the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1. The word Adoni is used there to tell us that the person addressed is not God, but a superior human or occasionally an angel. Peter, on whose confession Jesus founded the church, Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18, declared that Jesus was Lord in the sense revealed by Psalm 110, verse 1. Quote, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ, Acts 2, 36. He has just quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. Everyone should know that the second Lord there in that verse is not God. If people paid attention to that verse in Psalm 110 verse 1, very frequently quoted by the New Testament writers, there would be no confusion about who God and Jesus are. One is Yahweh, the one God of Israel, and the Father of Jesus. The other is the Lord Messiah, addressed not by a title of deity, but a title of superiority as a human person. Jesus used this verse in Psalm 110 verse 1 to make his audience think about who the Messiah is. He invited them to think about how the Messiah could be both the Lord of David and the Son of David. See Matthew chapter 22 verses 41 to 46. But Jesus was not asking them to think of the Messiah as the God of David, by being the supernaturally begotten Son of Mary and Son of God, Luke 1.35, Jesus was both Son and Lord of David from birth and ultimately by being raised to the right hand of the Father at his ascension. Peter understood this perfectly. He quoted that precious verse to prove that God had made Jesus Lord and Messiah. Acts 2 verse 36. No one imagined that Jesus was God. He was the Messiah. The issue of the right creed is no small matter. Billions of believers in God across the world are divided and potentially hostile to each other on the basis of differing concepts about God. We need to unite around the Bible's view, which incidentally will help to open conversation with members of the Muslim and Jewish faith, who are presently offended, and rightly so, by the traditional Christian idea that God is three in one. 
The so-called triune God of Christians puts up a barrier between Christians and much of the rest of the religious world. That barrier is quite unjustified. Jesus did not believe in the Trinity, nor did Paul or any New Testament writer. Who then is Jesus? Jesus is a perfect and unique human person. He began miraculously in the womb of his mother. That is what it means to be a human being. Human beings are not angels, and angels do not become humans, except in the grotesque and evil case of fallen angels mating with human females. See Genesis chapter 6. You cannot be pre-human and human. Jesus did not transition from one life into another. The womb of Mary was not a place of transit for Jesus. He's the second Adam. He's called the man Messiah. Thus he had a definite beginning in time. Jesus was six months younger than John the Baptist. He was not and logically could not be also millions of years older. A single line cannot begin at two different points. A single person cannot have two origins at two different times. The origin of the Son of God is traced to the miracle performed in Mary. See again Luke chapter 1 verse 35. The Son of God was supernaturally generated by God. The Jesus presented in church creeds is supposed to be the Son of God who had no beginning in time. This would make him non-human. It would mean that he passed through the womb of Mary, entering it from his pre-life, and then dressed up in human clothes and looked like a man, but really was not. If the ego of Jesus were God, he automatically could not sin or be tempted or die. In this case, his whole temptation and resistance of temptation would be a sort of game, a charade, an act. It would not in any way be an inspiring model for us. We are certainly not God, and having an immortal God as a model for mortal man would not even be fair. It would be like a concert pianist in a piano competition with children who had had two piano lessons. The whole idea of what the churches call, quote, the pre-existence of Jesus is really incomprehensible. It makes no logical sense. Think of a verb which goes like this. I pre-am, you pre-are, he pre-is. How can a single person pre-exist? Can you exist before you exist? Who pre-exists who in that case? The whole theory is baffling and incomprehensible and alien to the plain descriptions of how the Son of God began in Matthew and Luke. I want to let you in on an amazing fact of church history. When you read Luke 1 verse 35, you probably had no difficulty understanding that you were reading about the beginning of the Son of God. But by 150 AD, the church was rapidly losing touch 
with the biblical portrait of Jesus, was beginning to teach that Jesus was alive before he was born and that he actually brought about his own conception in Mary. Yes, that Jesus performed the miracle of his own birth. Think carefully about what has happened here. A tradition was being formed, later written into the creeds of most churches, by which the Son of God could no longer be a descendant of Eve, Abraham and David, supernaturally given existence, begotten in Mary. Justin Martyr was an important so-called church father of the second century. He was beginning to turn the teaching of Gabriel in Luke 1.35 into a completely different account of the origin of Jesus. Justin said that the power which overshadowed Mary in Luke 1.35 was none other than the Son of God. On that theory, the Son produced his own conception. This is really nonsense. But the idea is written into the creeds of churches. They teach that the Son of God did not originate in the womb of his mother. This concept is more akin to the pagan idea of reincarnation. Leading scholars today know quite well that Justin made nonsense out of the biblical account here, though they do not seem too worried. A leading expert commentator on Luke wrote, Quote, later tradition made something quite other out of Luke 135. That's a quotation from Joseph Fitzmaier in his book, The Gospel According to St. Luke. Quite other? Yes. The text was made to say something that Luke never imagined. Justin invented a brand new origin for Jesus, which later tradition has embraced to this day. It was that the Son of God did not begin in Mary's womb, but was alive before his birth and actually engineered his own conception. Happily, scholars admit that Luke and Matthew knew nothing about the doctrine which is now said to be the heart of Christianity, namely the incarnation with capital I of a second member of the Trinity as a man. Incarnation is in fact a notion foreign to Luke and also to Matthew. So said Joseph Fitzmaier in his book, The Gospel According to St. Luke. I quote further from James Dunn and his book, Christology in the Making. Luke is more explicit than Matthew in his assertion of Jesus' divine sonship from birth, Luke 1, verses 32 and 35. But here, too, it is sufficiently clear that it is a begetting, a becoming, which is in view, the coming into existence of one who will be called and will, in fact, be the Son of God, not the transition of a pre-existent being to become the soul of a human baby or the metamorphosis of a divine being into a human fetus. Luke's intention is clearly to describe the creative process of begetting, 
Similarly, in Acts, there is no sign of any Christology of pre-existence. End of quotation from James Dunn's Christology in the Making. The Bible warns us that only the historical Messiah, the man Christ, is the real Savior. Other saviors are only imitations and should not be taken as real. Jesus obviously believed that the majority would think that they had understood his teaching and that they had acted as his representatives, but they did not really sound like Jesus. Their teachings were unsound. Churches have a way of building into their systems of belief ideas which are not really based on the Bible, but only on tradition. How can we ensure against, quote, getting our faith wrong? The key to success is to be well-versed in what Jesus meant by the word gospel. Gospel of the kingdom is really an overarching title for Christianity. It's a sort of label for the Christian faith. Christianity is all about the kingdom of God. Jesus demonstrated this by being a tireless and fearless announcer of the kingdom of God and teaching his followers to, quote, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, verse 33, and to pray to God to send the kingdom, quote, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, Matthew 6, verse 10. Jesus said that the Christians would be granted the land or the earth as their reward. Matthew 5, verse 5. He said nothing at all about going to heaven. In the Old Testament, God, the Father of Jesus, had earlier promised the land not only to Abraham and David, but also to the faithful of all nations. He guaranteed them possession of that promised land forever, which of course implies immortality. That immortality and how to pursue it now is the center of Jesus' kingdom gospel. If Jesus talked about the kingdom always and preached it as gospel, it would make sense that the followers of Jesus would be doing the same. That seems to me to be a fair test if our language does not sound like Jesus, are we following him? Is Christianity just a matter of being kind and good as we define it? Do, quote, good people get crucified? Or was there much more involved in the teaching of Jesus than just being, quote, good? Christianity as Jesus taught it is a matter of living out every word of God Jesus did give us this piece of sage advice. Quote, Man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Presumably that implies a thorough search of Scripture to see what it teaches us. Note carefully that Jesus was not requiring us to live by the old covenant laws, given as a temporary guide to Israel through Moses, Jesus introduced the new covenant, which unites all nations in one faith. The book of Galatians deals with this important subject. 
If the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible in connection with Christ, who always preached the gospel of the kingdom, then must it not be the center of all Christian activity and preaching? If not, how can we be sure that we are thinking like Jesus and doing what he commanded? The gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14 says, will be preached in the whole world to all the nations and then the end will come. Preach the gospel to all the nations. Mark 16, verse 15, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. That would appear to be the simplest job description of the church. The Great Commission is very clear. Jesus gave a standing order when he told his successors to, quote, go to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them everything I have taught you. That's in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Clearly, the same gospel of the kingdom was to go unchanged to the whole world. Men and women were to be baptized in water, just as Jesus himself had been. Yes, the Jews were the first to get the saving gospel of the kingdom, but when the witness of them was complete, and many of them rejected it and their Messiah, then the same saving gospel of the kingdom was to go international. People of all races and languages would in this way have the opportunity to believe in Jesus and his kingdom gospel and be saved. Only when, quote, this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14, has crossed the globe with sufficient intensity can the end of the age come. Then it will be time for Jesus to return. The throne of David will be restored in Jerusalem and the Messiah will take up his office as king of the world. This information about the kingdom, the Christian hope, was given full and fascinating detail in Jesus' famous parable of the sower. According to Mark's reporting, that parable is also a parable about parables. I quote, If you do not grasp the point of this parable of the sower, Jesus said, you will not understand any of the parables. See Mark chapter 4, verse 13. The sower or seed parable is the key to all of Jesus' teaching, and it is the unpacking of the kingdom gospel which is vitally important for our salvation. Jesus used a perfect example to illustrate how spiritual rebirth takes place, namely a seed. We all know about seeds. We ourselves are all seeds. Everything starts with a seed. We are surrounded by evidence of the power of the seed. Seed is the key to life in the natural world. It's also the key to the life which lasts forever, immortality. The sower went out to sow his seed, Jesus said. The sower is the preacher of the gospel of the kingdom. The seed is, quote, the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, verse 19. Luke calls it 
the word of God, Luke 8, 11. Mark abbreviates it to the word, Mark 4, verse 14. And he and Luke did not just mean the Bible as a whole. They meant the gospel of the kingdom. We have in these three parallel accounts the simplest of equations. Word or gospel of the kingdom equals word of God equals word. Carry these definitions given by Jesus with you as you read the rest of the New Testament. Above all, never ever drop the word kingdom. If you do, you will cease to think and sound like Jesus. Jesus was thus the model seed sower, creating the possibility of life forever and ever. Greeks knew that the word, the Greek word, by the way, is logos. Some philosophers spoke of the logos spermatikos, recognizing the energy which produces life and growth. So this word of the gospel described the principle of coherence in the universe. Jesus showed what the real meaning of life and the universe is by telling us what the word really is. The seed is the word, Luke 8, 11. The seed is the vital spark of the new life which ends in immortality. It's the only logos or word of ultimate value, the pearl of great price. Jesus thus superseded all the wisdom of contemporary philosophy and science. No philosopher or scientist knows the secret to life forever, but we can all learn it from Jesus. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. This means that it really never penetrated the hearts and minds of those in the first category who heard. They heard it, but they did not understand it. They were quickly distracted by a multitude of competing attractions, and the seed came to nothing. As we say, in one ear and out of the other, quote, over their heads, as we would also say. Others accepted the seed gospel of the kingdom with excitement, but they did not last long, however, as Christians. They were shallow, and they put down no roots. They were not, quote, rooted and grounded in the gospel. They believed for a while, Luke 8, verse 13 says. Yes, they were real believers, but very short-lived. Temporary Christians, when trials and temptations arose, they dropped the message. They fell away from the faith and bore no fruit. Only the fourth category really succeeded with the seed. The seed was deeply planted in their understanding and eventually with perseverance amidst trials, it brought forth fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This, of course, implies that the seed carried in itself the very Spirit of God. That Spirit began to dwell in the hearts of the converts and fruit was born in due time. The produce of fruit was something astonishing, a hundred times more. 
The seed message of the kingdom contained the spark of new life, the secret of immortality. We might say that it transmits the very DNA of God himself. No wonder Jesus raised his voice as he preached this parable. Luke 8 verse 8, he used to raise his voice. He preached it over and over again. He knew that human destiny was at stake and it was the immortality message which the public needed to hear. Jesus, we remember, quote, brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. That's in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. The seed was the germ of new life. It was the very life of God himself transmitted through Jesus, who was the perfect human agent of the one God, his Father. Seed is about the most perfect illustration of new life, vitality, and energy. We all know something about how seeds work. We ourselves are the product of a male seed uniting with a female ovum. Our life is generated by this miracle, and the life of all animals follows this pattern. Seeds are planted everywhere, and we are constantly exposed to the fruit of the seed. Exactly the same seed process is true of the matter of being reborn, born again. We were once born a physical seed. That is not sufficient to bring us immortality. We have to be born over again. We must undergo a spiritual birth, a rebirth. We cannot re-enter the womb of our physical mother. Instead, we enter the womb of our mother, the church, as the community of faith based on the promises. Paul spoke of the so-called Jerusalem above in Galatians 4.26. This is the Jerusalem of the future, the kingdom of God. It is being prepared by God and Jesus now. It will be manifested on earth when Jesus comes back. We are sons and daughters of that kingdom gospel, children of the promise, as we read in Galatians 4, verse 28, and thus sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus. When we're born again, we become, quote, newborn babies, and we must then seek, quote, the pure milk of the word so that we can grow into spiritual adulthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. That milk for the reborn Christian is in fact the gospel milk. Peter used a word related to the word, logos in Greek. He refers to the milk of the gospel, the logikos milk. The seed is the gospel preached by Jesus. Luke 8, verse 11, Matthew 13, 19. That seed must be intelligently received in our hearts, our understanding. Satan is determined to wreck this process wherever he can. He watches the progress of the seed and snatches it away wherever he is permitted to do so. We must make the choice to follow the gospel message. 
If we do not pay attention to the seed gospel of the kingdom, the devil, and I quote, takes away the seed sown in our heart so that we cannot believe it and be saved. That is Luke 8 verse 12, a spectacularly interesting verse. Jesus made that brilliant observation. He clearly describes what is going on in the realm of spiritual warfare. The devil is relentlessly opposed to the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus understood God's will and purpose. He knew how the devil was determined to obstruct God's will. He also knew that human beings are given a choice. Quote, so that they cannot believe it and be saved. Luke 8 verse 12. Note these words carefully. The kingdom message is directly linked here to salvation. Receiving the kingdom gospel is a matter of life and death. Of course, as we know today, the death and resurrection of Jesus are also a vital part of the message which we must grasp. These events were added to or included in the gospel when they took place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin, as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Our sins have been covered, but we're not forgiven if we do not change our minds radically and begin to live earnestly as Christians. I quote, Jesus is the author of salvation for those who obey him. Hebrews 5 verse 9. Paul speaks of, quote, the obedience of faith and repentance and forgiveness depend directly on our reception of the kingdom gospel. You'll find that in Mark 4, verses 11 and 12. Our obedience to the gospel command of Jesus to believe God's gospel of the kingdom is paramount. The basis of this necessary change of mind is our acceptance of the kingdom gospel of Jesus. Mark 4, verses 11 and 12 give us a fair warning. Jesus there declared that we can be forgiven only on condition that we change our minds or repent. But how does Jesus define repentance? Jesus makes an intelligent reception of the kingdom gospel the condition for us being accepted with God and with Jesus. This is the most important teaching of Jesus. It should be read with utmost concentration since it provides a key to the New Testament system of salvation. Jesus said, in effect, quote, if they understood and accepted the gospel word, then they would be able to change their minds and be forgiven. The choice is made very clear here. As one commentator has said, Jesus divides society into two opposing camps, those who have heard, understood, and received the kingdom of God gospel, and those who have not. That's a quotation from George Ladd's book, 
theology of the New Testament. Is this not the plain meaning of Mark 4, 11 and verse 12? Luke reports the same truth in this way. Satan comes and removes the word from their heart so that they cannot believe it and be saved. That's in Luke 8, verse 12. No belief in the gospel as Jesus preached it, no salvation. Does not Jesus plainly make salvation depend on a willing acceptance and understanding of the gospel of the kingdom as he preached it? What about Luke 18:17? Unless you receive the kingdom of God as a little child, you will not enter it. These are extraordinarily impressive and important words. To enter the kingdom means to be saved. Believing the gospel of the kingdom is the key, the key of knowledge. Luke 11, verse 52. No wonder that throughout his ministry, quote, Jesus welcomed the people and began talking to them about the kingdom. Luke 9, verse 11. Paul's missionary style was exactly the same. Paul welcomed the people and preached the kingdom of God. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul was obeying the Great Commission. He was preaching the gospel. Jesus had commanded as the salvation message for all nations, quote, go into the whole world and teach them everything I taught you. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. If Paul had preached a different gospel, as some erroneously say, he would have put himself under his own curse. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul became passionately concerned about anyone who would distort the gospel by adding to it or taking away from it. Paul threatened gospel twisters with a kind of curse, changing the gospel in any way would be like adding foreign additives to good food and ruining it. In no way could the gospel be altered or modified. It would lose its saving effects. To deprive it of its rock-firm foundation in the kingdom preaching of Jesus would be to take a terrible risk. All the apostles preached the same kingdom immortality gospel. They were followers of the kingdom gospel preacher, Jesus. But can the same be said of modern evangelists? According to John's account of a famous interview between Jesus and a Jewish Bible teacher named Nicodemus, Jesus challenged this leader, quote, Unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. John 3, verses 3 and 5. Nicodemus was apparently a prominent religious leader, and he visited Jesus by night. Jesus got right to the point. Without a rebirth, there is no salvation, no immortality, no entrance into the coming kingdom. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that we must now be born again, and then as spiritual babies grow up, to maturity. By this process we can enter the kingdom when Jesus comes back. The kingdom 
will have been prepared and we will then be invited, quote, to enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. Luke reports Jesus as saying publicly exactly what he said to Nicodemus. Quote, Unless you accept the kingdom of God as a little child, you won't enter it. Luke 18, verse 17. Some have made the interview with Nicodemus very confusing. They have thought that Jesus was saying that you cannot be born again until the future resurrection. Jesus did not say that. He simply pointed out that, quote, flesh, that's to say human beings in their natural, unspiritual condition, cannot produce spirit. Only spirit produces what is spiritual. We are to be spiritual now by repentance and conversion and by receiving the gospel of the kingdom which carries the spiritual seed of immortality. The action of God's Spirit on us now is like the invisible power of the wind. After all, the Hebrew word for spirit means also breath or wind. The words of God in the Bible are spirit-filled words. John 6, 63. They transmit Holy Spirit to us. They convey the spirit and mind of God to us. This is how we learn truth, by tapping into the mind of God via his inspirited words. Paul's classic statement confirms this. How did you receive the spirit? By works of the law or by hearing the gospel and believing it? Galatians 3 verse 2. I quote, Having heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise. Ephesians 1 verse 13. The answer to the crucial question as to how the Spirit is received was given by Paul. It was that the words of the true gospel transmitted the Spirit to them, put the Spirit in their hearts. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. Remember that the gospel of the kingdom is actually called, quote, the Word in the New Testament. Back to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. It is very interesting that here in John's account of Jesus' teaching, being born again is made an absolutely essential condition for being saved in the future kingdom. In the reports of Jesus' teaching written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we do not find the exact words born again anywhere. Does this mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were unaware of Jesus' primary and basic teaching about being saved? Had they forgotten to mention such a vitally important teaching? Had they failed to report the key to salvation? Of course not. The fact is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded the same teaching about being, quote, born again under a different picture. They used the concept of seed. This was a picture drawn from farming, from agriculture. John's record of Jesus' talk with the scholar Nicodemus 
shows that Jesus spoke of the new life in the Spirit as parallel to a rebirth, being born again. Jesus used a comparison with human birth in the report of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talking to the public and the disciples, he used the agricultural comparison. That is, he spoke of the seed sown in our minds as the vitalizing agent of the new birth. The rest of the writers of the New Testament were united in their presentation of the secret of living forever. They were following Jesus and had learned the immortality, so to speak, trade from their master. They knew that immortality came through the seed message of the gospel. They heard Jesus teach this day after day in different settings. They had heard him raise his voice, expressive of his passion to rescue dying human beings. You'll read that in Luke chapter 8, verse 8, and John 12, verse 44. James, the half-brother of Jesus, reminded his readers that God, quote, of his own will, has given us birth through the word of truth. James 1, verse 18. This verse alone will convince the open-minded that we are not now in the fetal stage only. Peter had heard Jesus speak about the seed and rebirth many times. Peter recorded this central important teaching when he said that Christians have been born again, note the past tense, not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible seed through the abiding word of the living God. And that was the word, the gospel, preached to you. 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25. Listen carefully to Peter. I quote, Now you can have sincere love for each other as brothers and sisters, because you were cleansed from your sins when you accepted the truth of the good news. So see to it that you really do love each other intensely with all your hearts, for you have been born again, not from seed, which is perishable, but from imperishable seed. This new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the prophet says, quote, people are like grass that dies away. Their beauty fades as quickly as the beauty of wildflowers. The grass withers and the flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord will last forever. And that word is the good news or gospel that was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 22-25. I quote again, As newborn babes desire the gospel milk, so that by it you may grow up to salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. The Christian is likened to a new baby, not a fetus. Do you see how Peter beautifully combines the ideas of truth, rebirth, seed, word, and gospel? Peter's teacher, Jesus, had spoken of rebirth, seed, word, and gospel. 
Paul shares the same understanding. He speaks of Christians as those who are, quote, born of the Spirit. Galatians 4, verse 29. By this he means, quote, those born of the promise. Galatians 4, verse 28. They are the product of the great promise of immortality in the kingdom of God. That promise has brought them the new life in Christ. Paul also observed that the ones born of the Spirit are likely to be persecuted and opposed by those who are still in the flesh. Galatians 4 verse 29. All this reminds us of Jesus' words about flesh producing flesh and spirit producing spirit. That's in John 3 verse 6. Paul in this chapter 4 of Galatians likens the old covenant based on the Ten Commandments and the whole system of law given at Sinai to, quote, bondage or slavery in comparison with the freedom in Christ under the new covenant. This is a great truth overlooked by many who seek to understand the Bible. There's a new law or Torah of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, Galatians 6, verse 2, which is not just a repeat of the law of Moses. The Torah of Christ is in the spirit and not in the letter. Physical circumcision commanded for everyone seeking to be in God's old covenant, Genesis 17, was replaced by circumcision of the heart alone in the new covenant. That sets the pattern of a huge difference between the two covenants. The Apostle John was intensely interested in the seed which must dwell in the hearts of the Christians. In 1 John 3 verse 9, he noted that Christians are preserved from habitual sin by the seed which lives in them. It is the seed which brings about rebirth. That seed is nothing less than the character and nature of God himself transmitted to us by the gospel and the words of scripture. The seed, Jesus said, is the word of God. Luke 8 verse 11. The seed is the seed of life forever, of immortality in the coming kingdom. Let us never forget the equation gospel or word of the kingdom equals word of God equals word. Nor the sequence laid out by Jesus for becoming saved. Quote, seeing, hearing, understanding, repenting, and being forgiven, encapsulated by one of my students as Scherf, S-H-U-R-F. Christians are supposed to be channels or vehicles of the Spirit and words of God. Receiving the Spirit, they become seeds and are supposed to propagate further seed. David claimed this for himself when he uttered those beautiful and memorable words in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. David described his own experience with God. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me his word was on my tongue. Here we see that David's mind was in tune with the spirit and mind of God. 
God was able to put his thoughts and spirit into the mind of David, and David expressed this spirit in words. I like this definition of spirit very much. The spirit is not merely God's breath, but his self-awareness, his mind, his inner being. This may be the source or seat of God's vitality, but it's more. It is his self-consciousness, his very being, the center of his person, as we might say. Just as a man's spirit is his ultimate reality, when he's stripped of all that is accidental to his being, so God's spirit is his inner self. Spirit, therefore, contrasts with Christ insofar as the latter is God's image, while the former is his inner being. The phrase, the spirit speaks, shows that the spirit makes itself clear in words. Words are verbalized spirit. Water is invisible in a tank, but when the tap is turned on, the water becomes visible. Spirit exists first in the mind, and when words are uttered, they manifest that spirit and make it intelligible. So the effect of spirit and word is the same. Both spirit and word are the creative activity of God who is at work in us. No wonder Paul could speak of the gospel word as energizing in us. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. All true spirit and word have their source in God himself, who communicates by spirit. Jesus said that his own words were, quote, spirit and life. John 6, verse 63. And Peter knew that Jesus possessed, quote, the words of the life of the age to come. John 6, 68. And Peter spoke, quote, all the words of this life. Acts 5, verse 20. The New Testament leaders are in complete harmony on the subject. The New Testament leaders are in complete harmony on this subject as they go about offering the public the words of eternal life, which means the words of the life of the age to come or the kingdom. No wonder then that the New Testament issues the strongest possible warning against neglecting the preaching or teaching of Jesus. To do so would be to jeopardize the gracious offer of immortality. It would be to throw away the pearl of great price and squander the secret of living forever. Did not Jesus say, quote, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field and to get the treasure too. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. No wonder the apostles did their utmost always to prevent 
their congregations from abandoning the words or teachings of Jesus. Paul's words here have permanent value. I quote, Anyone who teaches anything different and does not keep to the sound teaching which is that of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine which is in accordance with true religion, he is both conceited and ignorant. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words, and this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, fighting, slander, and evil suspicions. You'll find that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And John said this about the loss of the precious seed of the gospel as Jesus taught it. I quote, For if you wander beyond the teaching of Christ, you will not have fellowship with God. But if you continue in the teaching of Christ, you will have fellowship with both the Father and the Son. That's in 2 John verse 9. After all, the whole purpose of Jesus was to impart a proper understanding to us. John wrote this, I quote, And we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we are in God because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's in 1 John 5, verse 20. An Old Testament passage, often neglected, prophesied that the suffering servant, Jesus, would, quote, make many righteous through his knowledge. Isaiah 53, verse 11. The key, then, to a good understanding is to heed the words of God, who said of Jesus, Quote, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Matthew 17, verse 5. The death of Jesus is, of course, also essential, but God did not say, only this is my beloved son, watch him die.